0: Welcome to this edition of The Leader's Corner, a podcast dedicated to bringing the voices of Army Reserve leadership in a way that's engaging, vibrant, and informational. I'm your host, Sergeant First Class Jeremiah Richardson. The Army preaches resilience. For the time each of us stepped off that bus in basic training or officer candidate school, we were grilled with pressure to train us to better handle adversity as soldiers. This is an ongoing lesson for all of us, and many of us stumble, we get injured or face trauma outside of our workspace. Figuring out how to face each day with our boots tight and our minds focused in the midst of such circumstances can seem near impossible. In those times, we look to those who've overcome such obstacles and to inspire us and guide us. Our guest today is just one of those special sorts of people. She knows an awful lot about breaking through walls of doubt and fighting through adversity say hello to command sergeant major kelly Har, who is currently garrison command sergeant major of fort devons reserve forces training area in massachusetts she joined the army as a vehicle mechanic in 2000 and later spent time in korea before moving to the army reserve from there she volunteered to deploy to operation iraqi freedom and later had the unique opportunity to work as a legislative liaison with congress she's an inductee into the audi murphy club and was a two-time winner of the Army Reserve Careers Division Counselor of the Year Award. She holds a master's degree from AMU, is a master fitness trainer, and is currently working on her 315-pound deadlift. Command Sergeant Major, that's literally like lifting a Wisconsin white-tailed deer. Um,
1: I've never lifted a deer, but I am all about functional fitness. So if my 315-pound deadlift means I can pick up a deer, then I'm all for that.
0: Nice. I don't know if that would mean that we'd have some new competition going on in Wisconsin, but so what do you do to train?
1: Uh, currently, I'm doing uh, functional fitness a couple of times a week, and then I, I do some cycling, I do some running, a uh, little bit of everything. So I started out as a powerlifter back when I was in high school from a small town. There wasn't a whole lot to do there, so a lot of us kids got together, and we were thinking. Luckily enough, we had a pretty awesome coaches at our little small gym. Um, it was in the garage of somebody's house at first before it blossomed into something a little bit bigger. But we had some great coaches that taught us proper technique at a very young age, and I've been able to carry that with me through my entire career. And uh, I, the most I've ever done was 315, uh, about, about 2016 was the last time I did that. Um, and two and a half years ago, I had a pretty gnarly injury where I was climbing up a pegboard and slipped and fell off from about 6 feet up in the air.
2: Wow.
1: Landed on my right ankle and pretty much did everything possible damage wise to my foot and ankle that you could do without breaking anything. I had some grade 3 sprains, um some really deep bone contusions, some grade 3 uh stress fractures to the tibia, um but nothing that required surgery. It, it did require ten months of physical therapy. I was in a boot for eight weeks, and I had to learn to walk properly again. Once the boot came off, you know my body and my mind were just not working together. and i would I would spend several hours a week hanging on to my physical therapist, just trying to learn to walk like a normal person again. yeah uh, and so it it took a lot for me to get back to lifting. You know, the first time I picked up a barbell and was doing. 155 it felt like 400 pounds and yeah it's very humbling if you've never had a serious injury before to especially when you're really active to go from being super active one day to literally not being able to move and walk the next day
0: yeah you know a lot of people don't really know what it's like to to deal with that kind of pain um i i remember one time at a pt session i sprained my ankle so bad i was been purple halfway up to my knee and it was way more pain than i had ever experienced with any break it's kind of incredible
1: it's terrible sprains are way worse than breaks in my opinion cuz you can't really do anything for it it's just time and therapy and that's it
0: yeah and it also you know some people when that happens it seems like they don't they don't come back from it because they overcompensate with their other limbs and then they cause more injuries
1: Yes. And that was what my problem was with walking is I kept shifting back to the left side and my brain knew how much pain I was in. So, and remembered my brain knew the fall and how much it hurt. So my brain was like, Nope, I'm not going to let your body do this. And it was a fight. It was a huge struggle. And I had an awesome PT who he learned who I was as a person and was able to use that to help me, you know, I'm competitive. So we would practice standing on one foot and Okay, you got to do 30 seconds this time because it would drive and push me. Um, when I first started PT, I couldn't stand on my right foot for more than seven seconds at a time
2: mm.
1: without falling over. And uh, to think of where I was when it first happened and where I'm at now, you know, I still don't have full range of motion and I probably never will again. So that's been a struggle to continue to deal with two and a half years later. I have come pretty far from it. Um, But I definitely will not be climbing any pegboards ever again in
0: (laughs) in the gym. Can you tell me, like, for those of us who aren't like super master fitness people, what a pegboard is like trying to explain to me like where the injury happened?
1: So the pegboard is um, up against the wall and you have like round pegs and the board has a bunch of little holes in it. And you take a peg out of one hole and raise your arm up and put the peg in another hole and you alternate that each time. And it's, it's all upper body weight. Oh. Sometimes we put our feet against the wall, which is part of what my problem was. I pushed my feet against the wall too much. So when I grabbed the peg out, uh, my feet pushed me back off the wall and I fell to the ground.
0: So you're talking like... It's kind of like Ninja
1: Warrior stuff.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's what I was going to say, like yeah. American Ninja <laughs> yep. Warrior stuff. Yeah, I didn't know you were that hardcore. That's yes. awesome.
1: Well, clearly I'm not because I fell. <laughs> <laughs> it was a good attempt.
0: So do you, I mean, obviously the injuries set back any plans you had of that kind of thing, but do you still like to do those kinds of workouts where you can? I mean, obviously you're saying upper body, but...
1: I do. Um, I still do functional fitness a couple of times a week, and I, you know, still train for the ACFT. Um, at that time, the PT test was still valid, so I, I had to learn to run again. Um, my first PT test back from that was probably the most pain, second most pain compared to the actual fall, and being able to run two miles, you know, six months after that happened. Uh, I also had a, a four-day hike to Machu Picchu scheduled and already booked before I fell. And uh-huh. my PT helped me work through that to be able to do is a 26-mile hike. I'm a little bit nervous with that, but I was able to manage to you know, kind of push past the pain a little bit. And it wasn't anything that I was going to injure myself again. So I was able to complete that. But I, I can't give up the functional fitness stuff. I, I love kind of a workout i love challenging my body on a daily basis and doing something different every day
0: can you can you tell me a little bit again a lot of us you know who aren't gym rats don't know what functional fitness is can you explain what that is a little bit
1: so um it's crossfit basically okay Um, but not every gym is affiliated with crossfit so functional fitness is using a philosophy where you do different things every day, because if we do the same things in the gym day after day, our body's going to adapt to that. And we're not going to get stronger and we're not going to get better. So Uh the functional fitness philosophy is to use some variance to that. And then also do movements that are functional to daily life. It's very similar to what the ACFT is functional to the duties of a soldier. So, you know, deadlift is really important because, how many times a day do you pick stuff up? You know, if you have kids, especially, so what's the proper way to pick something up? You know, how long do you want to be able to move and how long do you want to be able to work out? So the functional fitness aspect really takes into focus the proper movements and the best movements for everyday activities. And I started a functional fitness class at Fort Devons when I first got there. Um, it was a way for me to connect with the soldiers as mm-hmm. the garrison CSM, you know, in a reserve training base. We have a lot of transient soldiers so it's not like most bases where there's permanent party there all the time. Mm-hmm. And we have a couple of Marine units there as well. So I started the functional fitness course just cause I like doing it. And then also to give something to the soldiers and, um, we would do 45 minute classes twice a week over the lunch and you know, every day was something completely different And one day. You may be super awesome at the workout and finish first because uh-huh. what we're doing is in your wheelhouse. And then the next class, you may be absolutely last because you're not great at everything, but the goal is to be, you know, somewhat good
2: at most things.
0: Right now. Now I imagine though, for you, because this is like, you know, what you enjoy doing, you know, when you got injured, not having that, outlet for a little while, must've been pretty hard.
1: Yeah. I, I tell people that the, the mental recovery from my injury was way more difficult than the physical one And the physical recovery was hard, but I was, you know, I was coaching functional fitness on post. I was coaching at a CrossFit gym off post. Um, my fall was a week after I'd ran my ninth army 10 miler. So to go from being active, you know, I had a dog, we'd walk and run together to go from being active, you know, five or six days a week to not being able to get off my couch. Uh, it was really bad. And you know, I would say I got depressed over that winter. It got worse when it was snowy and icy because I was scared that I was going to fall again. So I didn't want to do anything. And I kept focusing on the negative side of, I can't, I can't run. Uh, I can't jump up on a bar. I can't squat. I can't do all this stuff. And one of my friends told me to Write down all the things that you can do. You know, mm-hmm. you can still sit on a bench and do strict press. You can still do the bike. You can still do the row. Mm-hmm. Um, I was in a walking boot, so I could still walk a little bit. Um, I could coach with modifications. You know, I couldn't demonstrate anything. I had have other people do it. Um, but that really turned me around and thinking, okay, like stop feeling sorry for myself. I'm still mm-hmm. here. You know, I don't have a. I still have my foot. You know, it, it may not be moving very well and. I can't walk on it very well, but I still have it. So let's think about the positive side.
0: Yeah, you know, the way you, you talk through that, it reminds me. I see soldiers get injured. And you're talking, you know, they're in TPU land and you notice they have a hard time getting through it. And and you watch that they give them they gain weight and they haven't figured out how to work out or how to maintain their fitness. And it becomes this cascading snowball effect that just gets worse and worse. And I'm sure like, you know, you going through that kind of probably gave you a little sympathy for those kind of soldiers that are dealing with that.
1: Oh, for sure. Um, you brought up nutrition and you know, or eating. I had a nutrition coach at the time and my first reaction, even with experience through all of this fitness and nutrition was I need to start eating less because I'm not working out. And she said, no, that's, that's the worst thing you can do. While you're recovering, while your body is injured, you actually need to eat more calories. That's mm. going to help speed up the process of the recovery. And you need to actually move, you, mm. whether it's just your upper body or sit on a bike. But the more that you move, the quicker your recovery will be. Um, but if you're not in that sort of environment where, where you have somebody to tell you those things, you can absolutely go down the wrong path. And it's even more difficult with Army Reserve soldiers because we don't see them every day. And we don't have the same opportunities that the active component has with, you know, a, nutri- a nutritionist that's at the local hospital or the clinic or some sort of resource that they can get to right away. I think we're moving in that right in that direction, and I think it's the right direction. Uh, logistically, it's just going to take a little bit longer for Compost Two and Three to get to where the active component is when it comes to fitness and nutrition.
0: Yeah, I've I've definitely seen too many soldiers. Actually, the snowball effect becomes what I talked to you about earlier, where First off, they, they overcompensate, and then they injure their other limb, you know, and before you know it, they have two bad knees,
2: mm-hmm. and then
0: they have a bad back <laughs> from having two bad knees, Yes. and it just gets worse and worse, and, you know, then they, they become depressed, and especially, you know, I've seen soldiers that seem like mm-hmm. decent, great soldiers. You, you watch them start to go downhill, and if somebody didn't know who they were before, they would think they might be a dirtbag, but that's not necessarily true.
1: Exactly. Injuries are hard for everybody. Um, but if you don't have that support system around you, and you by support system, I mean family and friends. And then, you know, as NCOs, we have a responsibility to support our soldiers as well. So you know it goes back to, for me to education and educating our NCOs on how to take care of the soldiers, you know, giving them the right resources. And if you can't physically be there to support them, because I understand TPUs are we have soldiers that are all over and may travel three or four states to battle assembly just knowing where they can reach out to um the the internet's a good thing and a bad thing there's a lot of great things that we can find on there as far as recovery and nutrition um then also instilling that resilience in them like my friend did with me you know and i i should know that you know there's no reason i coach that there's no reason that i shouldn't know to think on the positive stuff you know i've been through mrt But sometimes we need somebody to remind us like, this is where your head's at. And this is where your head needs to be. And I'm going to help you get there.
0: Mm. Yeah. Having a a battle buddy to help you along makes such a big difference, especially, you know, our bodies naturally, when we feel pain, we don't want to feel that pain, but with physical therapy, you got to (laughs) fight through the pain.
1: Yes. Um, I used to do, you know, before I fell box jumps anywhere from 20 to 30 inches high um, and I'm not exactly tall. I'm only 60 inches tall. So oh. doing a 30 inch box jump for me is that's pretty significant. Yeah. <laughs> so after I fell, <laughs> that's my half my height. Um, after I fell in it, PT, as we progressed, I remember the first time I had to jump onto a box that was no more than six inches high. I, I have it on video and I was terrified. I mean, mm-hmm. absolutely terrified. It took me almost 10 minutes to be able to jump on this box because I would start and then my mind would be like, Oh, we remember how much pain you were in. I don't think you should do this. Mm -hmm. And my PT was awesome. Super encouraging. And eventually I jumped on the box and it was like, I mean, it, to me at that time, it could have been like a 36 inch box. It was Mm -hmm. the biggest accomplishment for me to be able to do that mentally. Mm -hmm. And as a coach now, you know, I, I, I knew box jumps were scary for people, but mm-hmm. actually going through that, you know, I could really empathize with them, you know, just on how terrifying it is to lift your body off the ground and jump onto something and pray that you land properly. So yeah. It's about trusting yourself, too. Um, so once I did it once, then I was like, all right, we're good to go.
0: Got this. Yeah. Yeah. I, I want to talk to you something about mm-hmm. something a little bit, I guess, unique to an army soldier situation when you're someone who's squared away. And that's that there's this 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 hesitancy to want to go through with um, the the full profile injury process, because you don't want to be like one of, quote unquote, those soldiers. Right. Was that something that you kind of wrestled with? Like you didn't want to be that I
1: did um, because my fall was about two weeks before I was supposed to take my PT test for that year, my second one for that year. So after I fell and obviously couldn't run, I thought, "Oh crap, I'm going to be out of tolerance for my PT test now. And that's why I fought so hard to be able to run by the next summer because I had a promotion board coming up and I didn't want to have a PT test with a past date because Mm -hmm. the board's not going to know about my injury. They don't care about my injury. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: So I had to push really hard to be able to start running again and I, I did it safely, you know. I run for thirty seconds at a time and built up from there to be able to run my two miles. But, um, I think over time, you know, there are soldiers who abuse the profile policy, mm-hmm. and I think that's what people tend to focus on.
2: Yeah.
1: Versus, yeah, there are legitimate reasons that people need to be on a profile and they need to stay on a profile. And I, I've known soldiers who will fight hard to take a PT test even before they probably should and end up getting injured again. And in my head, I'm like, for what, you know, and it's unfair to those soldiers because I feel like a lot of times there's pressure on them from others to push past their profile um, and to take a PT test or do something that maybe they shouldn't versus just trying to let them heal properly. And again, I think the army is moving in the right direction with that concept of the recovery process and adding physical therapists to to uh, brigades and to units, I think we'll see a shift in that mindset. Mm. They'll really assess injuries a little bit better, having somebody on site more frequently than sending a soldier just to the TMC.
0: Yeah. A lot of our, a lot of our problems with those kinds of things when it comes to to medical issues are are perception issues. Um, And, and yes, it's, it's, I think it's very difficult for, for soldiers, you know, who who want to seem like they're doing everything they can to like try to get off profile as soon as possible, so they're effective and don't look like somebody who's just broken sitting around collecting the paycheck.
1: When I was a four bell Belvoir, I got poison ivy on my foot, and the doctor tried to give me a soft shoe profile, and I said, "Nope, not. <laughs> I'm not doing that." Um, and it was so uncomfortable to wear boots, but it was exactly like you said. I did not want to be that soldier that had on tennis shoes with my uniform. Um, just even though I probably could have benefited from it and the poison ivy wouldn't have lasted as long, but I refused.
0: Yeah, I, I think every soldier who who has a, a heart to do the best they can the army has some of those stories where they probably should have waited longer and they didn't. Uh, I know myself, I, I I rolled my ankle right right in my mob training and I rolled it so bad and and I I wasn't going to miss my deployment. This was back in you know oh five and everybody was going to Iraq. And I was like, I got to go. I'm not going to be the guy who doesn't go, you know, and stupidly, Mm
2: -hmm.
0: I just laced up my boot super tight, you know, put on an air cast. And I probably shouldn't have done that because I pay for that even now, you know, to this day, because I didn't finish physical therapy. And um, so I'll say that uh, I hope other soldiers don't do that. Do likewise.
2: (laughs) 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 Um, I'm sure that was painful.
0: Oh my goodness. Uh, yeah, it was one of those things. I, I hit the floor of the gym and, and I couldn't even stand. I just crawled all the way out of the gym (laughs) on my hands and knees. And it was purple. I've never had to turn purple up to my, my knee before that was, that was, it was gross, actually, um, grossly painful. Uh, so, you know, I imagine, I mean, that was some mental toughness for you, you know, to make it through that. Um, like, how do you teach that kind of mental resilience to the soldiers you 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 deal with?
2: Really every
1: soldier you have to approach differently. Um, you have to know where they're coming from. You have to know a little bit of their background because you can have six soldiers in the same situation and every single one of them is going to react differently. So you have to know some, you know, you can push a little bit harder and you know they're a little bit stronger while others may need a little more support. I am big on encouraging soldiers to go talk to somebody and to seek therapy. You know, I, the first time I ever did it, it took me a long time to be comfortable and to be vulnerable enough to admit I needed to talk to somebody. Mm -hmm. And I had a horrible experience. The first time at I was at the clinic at the Pentagon and talked to my primary care doctor and said, you know, I've got some things going on. I need to talk to somebody. I'm to the point where I can't deal with them on my own. And because I wasn't suicidal, I was pretty much dismissed and considered not very important as far as finding me help. Um, there was an offer for the chaplain and that was it. Um, the other, Oh, it's going to take three to four weeks to get a referral. Are you sure that you don't have friends you can talk to? Um, and I was, I was shocked and I thought this is why soldiers don't go get help It's because this is how they're treated. It's, Like it's almost like there were just two buckets, either you're suicidal or you're not suicidal. And if you're not suicidal, then yeah, it's okay. We got time. Go talk to friends. And that's not what I needed. Mm -hmm. So I ended up going down to the clinic at Fort Belvoir and finding a behavioral health therapist there. And she helped me work through some issues and, and it was awesome. And Yeah, I I know a lot of senior leaders, as they or leaders as they get older, will you know admit, yes, I've had issues, I've gone to talk to somebody, and I think that's awesome. It's great to hear. Mm -hmm. But what I want to hear is that young E four and that young E five saying, "Yep, I have some issues, and I need to go talk to somebody," because if we can start it at that age and that young age in your career, and they're going to affect so many more people as they continue to grow and as they continue to progress in the military versus waiting until, you know, we're, we're 20 years in and we, we've we missed that opportunity for the last 15 years to be able to tell soldiers, this is what I went through and yeah. this is how I dealt with it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I, I recall even my my deployment, um I came back and this was, I know the Army has gotten better at this, but, and this was some years ago, but I, I remember getting back and then they ask you, do you want to see somebody to talk? And if you do, you got to stay here longer. If not, you get to go home and you know, for yep. the young soldier, like, uh, I haven't been home in a year and a half. Like, and I don't care today enough. <laughs> Maybe I will tomorrow, but peace, exactly. you know, <laughs> you put that kind of mm-hmm. like tomato tomato in front of them. They're always going to go for home. That's, that's the way it's going to be.
1: I just think as a as a society, I do think we are getting better at normalizing talking about, going to behavioral health and talking about mental health issues. Whereas, you know, when I first came in, you didn't talk about it. You were supposed to, you know, suck it up, drive on is what everybody was told from the beginning. And it didn't matter if it was an injury to your ankle or if it was an issue that you couldn't come back from and you weren't resilient enough. It was, we don't talk about those things. And it's a culture that we have to change. And I do see some some hope in that, that things are starting to move in the right direction and it's starting to be more normalized and people are having discussions about it and it's getting out in the open. And, and I hope that continues. I hope it starts with soldiers in that are first coming in and that they can continue to push that through their careers versus waiting till that towards the end of their careers.
0: Yeah. And I imagine, you know, your experience as a, as a career counselor, you know, you've probably dealt with a lot of soldiers that were looking for you know, big changes in their lives and, and trying to get through stuff. Um, like, what from your experience, you know, both in your passion for uh, a soldiers' well being and and that sort of thing goes into giving the sort of advice.
1: Well, that goes back to knowing the soldiers individually. You know, there's not a blanket counseling for every soldier who's eligible to reenlist because each situation is different. You have to figure out what's motivating the soldier, what's driving them. You mm-hmm. know. What's their family situation like? What's their financial situation like? Can they afford to get out of the Army Reserve? That's generally a big one. And then ask what makes them happy. Are they happy with their unit? Are they happy with their leadership? Are they happy with their MOS? Because those are things that I can affect as a career counselor, and I can help them change them. If it's something bigger in their life that I can't affect as much, you know, I'll I'll talk them through it, and I'll encourage them to stay. Mm -hmm. But I've also never talked a soldier into staying in the army that doesn't want to be in the army. So mm-hmm. I, I will lay out all the benefits, um, give them their options, but the army's not for everybody. And mm-hmm. I am, I'm a firm believer in that. And if you don't want to be in the army, then I don't want to keep you in the army either. Mm-hmm. And that's tough because as career counselors, we're on a mission and we have numbers.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so it, it is hard for some to accept that, no, you should get everybody to reenlist to Personally, that's not something I believe in, and I can't compromise my integrity and try to you know, force a soldier to stay in as much as possible just to hit a number. If it's right. not what makes them happy, then what I want to do is find them a path in their life that works best for them, help them make changes where I can, and if not, then give them the best advice and resources if they decided to get out of the military.
0: Yeah, I, I know a lot of the soldiers that I, I've lost, and what I mean by lost is they've left for the civilian world that I didn't want to lose. They were just trying to figure out that balance, you know, that balance between, you know, the civilian world, TPO world, their families, you know, mobilizations. And it was just, sometimes it just doesn't work out.
1: That's a very tough world to be in. And I don't think a lot of people understand just how difficult it is to be a TPU soldier. Mm -hmm. You know, I was active duty. I was TPU and now I'm HGR. So I feel like I can, speak about each of the three active duty. I don't want to say it was easy, but it's a lifestyle you lead 24 seven. So everything's right there for you. As a TPU, you know, you have to travel to drill you know, one week in a month. So your, your normal daily routine is disrupted. It's not like on active duty where it's pretty much the same thing day after day. And then you also have your civilian job. So depending on what's going on with your civilian job and then it gets disrupted by your battle assembly weekends or your AT. Um, so I, I think more credit needs to be given to TPU soldiers and everything that they endure. You know, I know there's a lot of jokes about the, you know, the weekend warriors. And
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, I, I absolutely think that's a thing of the past. Ever since you know, 2003, 2004, you mm-hmm. know, the TPU soldiers in the army reserve have been on the front lines just as much as the active component has. Yeah. The, they do a lot. You have know, the twice the citizens. It, it's hard
0: on them. It's hard on their families too. Yeah. I'd even say nowadays, you know, maybe e and below can just, you know, put on GI Joe, you know, once a month and and be super soldier. But, you know, when you start to get the the NCOs and the officers and, and especially the field grade officers who run units, I mean, there's, there's all these requirements that happen throughout the week, teleconferences and things that they need to be on for mm-hmm. planning. And it does ask a lot and and we don't, often um, show our gratitude enough to them, I think.
1: Yeah, I absolutely agree.
0: Um, so I want to talk a little bit more about you personally. Now, the rank of okay. Command sergeant command major uh, certainly doesn't come easy. And I don't see that many female Command sergeant majors. So I have to ask, has it been difficult for you to overcome perceptions?
1: Um, I don't know that I would say it's been difficult. It hasn't been super easy. But I, I try not to focus on the gender so much. You uh-huh. know, I'm not naive enough to think that it doesn't exist or, you know, still to this day, uh, I have male soldiers or and civilians who don't necessarily treat me the same as a male sergeant major. Um,
2: uh-huh.
1: it, little things like not looking me in the eye or during a meeting will turn to a male soldier to. Address a question that I ask, um, and over time, I've learned to pick up on that stuff, just so I know who I'm I'm dealing with and know how to deal with them. I don't know that that question. I don't want to sound like whiny, but I do think yeah. it's something that needs to be talked about.
0: Yeah, and and you know, this is also coming out. It should be up still during Women's History Month, so it's an important subject. I mean, it's always an important subject. So I, I don't okay. I don't think I don't think personally that it. You explaining the the difficulties that you have to overcome are are, are detrimental or bad. I, I think in the same way, like when it comes to racial issues, where we don't understand because we're not in those shoes. You know, we don't like know who. I, how many female command majors have I talked to? Not not many. So I got to ask, like, what kinds of things have you felt you've had to overcome in earning that rank and wearing that rank?
1: Uh, well, first, I want to say. To hear you say, you know, you don't see that many females start command sergeants major. I've heard that several times before. Um, that's heartbreaking to me that that's not the norm. And I'm happy to be part of that change. And I want to do whatever I can to continue to inspire that change and you know lead from the front and be a good example. So there other females can follow in my footsteps. Um, Kind of at a young age in my military career, I was an E4 at Fort Hood competing at a soldier of the quarter board. Mm. I'd been in the army like a year and a half at the time. I uh, didn't really know what that was. Didn't know a lot about the army. Got well to do it kind of at the last minute. Mm. And mm. as I was preparing my uniform, my uh, my first sergeant came to talk to me and he's the one that nominated me to go. And he said, you're not going to wear your skirt to the board. And I was like, What? I, okay. He mm. said, you're going to wear your dress greens with the pants. He said, you don't want to give them an opportunity to say that you won for any other reason other than you were the best. And at that time I didn't understand what he meant. Yeah. And it took me several years to fully understand that he didn't want me to go to the board and wear a skirt and win and give somebody the opportunity to say that, Oh, she only won because she's a female and she was wearing a skirt. Wow. And I carry that with me throughout my entire career of I want to make sure that the things that I'm doing, the reason that I'm getting promoted is because I'm doing great things. I'm the best. It's not because of my gender. And I don't want my gender to define me as a leader. I want to just be a great leader. I don't want to only be a, a great female leader. Yeah. On that same note, you know, I'm not naive enough to think that my gender doesn't matter because obviously it does, you know, there mm-hmm. are not a lot of females, TSM's, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. So I do want to be a good example for other females to, to follow and males too. So you know, I'll lead males and females, the exact same way.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, there are still some, some soldiers that and civilians that I come across that, don't necessarily treat me the same as they would a male soldier. Um, I, I'm pretty blunt as a leader. I've, mm. I've worked on dialing that back just a little bit. So I'm not quite as as harsh. You know, I'll drop the F-bomb if I feel like it. And, you know, I, I've had some soldiers that, you know, oh, I didn't know females talk like that. <laughs> I'm still an NCO. I'm still a command sergeant major, but, you know, there, there's some minor things in you know, what's accepted for a female to do as a leader and what's accepted as a male to do as a leader.
2: Mm.
1: And it's, it, that's still relevant today. I've seen that, you know, I've been in 21 years and I've seen that every unit I've been to. Um, I don't let it bother me. You know, I don't treat anybody different. If, if your perception of me is based on my gender, I'll, Mentally, I'll acknowledge and note that, uh, but I'm still going to be who I am 100% and I'm not going to change that just because of somebody's perception of what a female command sergeant major should be.
0: Hmm. Yeah, and you're dealing with larger societal perceptions that have nothing to do with the Army when it comes to that kind of stuff.
1: I do feel like there's been situations where I felt like I had to prove myself Hmm. um, more than some of my peers. Uh, The academy, the sergeant's major academy was a place, you know, that's a very interesting dynamic when you bring NCOs in from all three compos and then other branches. And then we had international NCOs as well. Mm. And for some, that's really the first time that they've had face-to-face interactions with female leaders. Mm. And at the beginning, you could tell. Um I could well I had one particular guy in my class that would not make eye contact me with, with me when he was talking, you mm. know, and another guy uh, whenever we shake hands it was a very loose handshake but we got to the point where we could talk about that in you know they admitted yeah with a female soldier I don't shake her hand as hard and I'm like well why not like we're not fragile little beings that you know gonna break you I can deadlift 315 shake my freaking hand it's fine um but it was just and, and I understand some of it is societal and how they're raised you know yeah. um and it's, so that's a different, difficult mind shift to get past. So I am aware of all that. And again, that's part of why I don't let it bother me too much. Um, me being, I'm five foot tall, as I mentioned, I I'm very short. So mm-hmm. being a very short female command Sergeant major too, um, mm-hmm. I do feel like for some people I have to prove myself. Um, oh. and then there's others that, you know, they just see what I do every day and they know from the beginning that, um, I'm a good leader. I tried to be a good leader.
0: Cool. You know, I, um, I was talking to Lieutenant General Jody Daniels in an interview and I, I kind of brought up this issue about, you know, her being the first female three-star general of the army reserve and that sort of thing. And her response, it it struck me. She said, who's better qualified.
1: Yes. Um, Roger Rousey has a quote and I'm not going to say it exactly, but it's along those lines. Um, that talks about, says something about, you know, um, you think bad of me because I think I'm I'm the best and what other ways should I think, you know, why shouldn't I be that confident that I am the best and she's right. Who else was better qualified? I feel like the most qualified person was picked regardless of gender. I think gender is irrelevant when it comes to trying to find the best leader.
0: Yeah. When it comes to experiences, that the qualifications they have and And that sort of thing. I wonder what kind of reaction have you gotten from other female soldiers who see you walking around with that command sergeant major rank?
1: I get asked to be a mentor a lot, and which I love. You know, Hmm. I will share my story as much as possible. I possibly can. Um, I will help encourage others. You know, to get outside of their comfort zone. I think one of the biggest thing I encourage female soldiers to do is to have their own voice. You know, I I think it's really easy for female soldiers to kind of get lost in the shuffle or feel like they can't speak their mind or, you know, it goes back to the, oh, you're a female, you should act this way and and not this way, um, to really figure out who they are and who they want to be. Hmm. And, you know, lots of high fives and um, just want to know what I did throughout my career. And, And I tell them everybody's career is different, but. Uh, I think it's very important for soldiers, male and female, to get outside of their comfort zone. You know, I applied for that position with legislative affairs. I don't, I don't have an interest in politics. I didn't then, and I still don't. Um, but it was interesting, and it was different, and it was not like anything I had ever experienced in the Army before. So I went for it, um, and I got selected, and it was probably one of the best decisions I made in the military, Um fear is okay. It's good to be scared. You should do things that scare you. You should do things that challenge you. And again, as, as females, you know, we, we do have to fight against, like you mentioned the perceptions and we have to Mm -hmm. fight against how people think we should behave. So yeah, just having that voice, being able to stand up for yourself and doing just as much as the person next to you does, you know, regardless of that person's gender.
0: I know for me, uh, what I've always felt that, if there's a soldier issue that's not being taken care of, like that sergeant major is going to break down somebody's freaking door to make sure it happens. And, and, and those are the kind of sergeant majors. I think that every soldier's like, we love you, man. You know, you're amazing. You know? And um, yes. <laughs> so, so with that, I'd ask like, well, how do you hope to inspire both female and male soldiers as a command sergeant major?
1: I hope just my everyday actions inspire them. Um, I kind of joke that, you know, if, if I don't piss somebody off, then I'm not really doing my job. Um, and <laughs> I, I'm not one to just stay in my office and sit in my chair. Uh, I will get out there and make things happen. When I first got to Fort Devons, uh, our fitness center is in an old chapel and it, it could not have been more outdated with just the layout was horrible, not conducive mm. to actually lifting weights and old, you know, life fitness machines and, I, I made that my mission. We're going to give the soldiers in Fort Devens and the Marines a great place to work out because there's not a lot here anyway. So they need some space to actually do their physical fitness, you know, and I, I, physical fitness is way more important than just, you know, the physicality of it. I think it's, you know, it helps your mental fitness as well. So uh, I started making some phone calls about trying to get us a functional fitness package and met with some resistance. And I don't take no as an answer. Um, mm-hmm. if I think there's a, you know, a small possibility that other things can happen, I will do what I can. And I, mm-hmm. I know I made some people upset. <laughs> uh, I don't <laughs> care because we now have a full functional fitness package in our gym. Um, we have brand new flooring, uh, air runner, all kinds of awesome equipment and the soldiers and the Marines love it. You know, our, our numbers in the gym have gone up substantially. They have a great place to work out. They have plenty of space, an awesome place to train for the ACFT, um, So, you know, I I try to do things, not try, I do things that are for the soldiers and I would like to think that they see that, you know, and I don't have a lot of soldiers right now as the garrison CSM. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: I don't have a single soldier directly under me. It's all civilians. Um, But to me, it's still leadership, whether they're wearing a uniform or not, you know, it's still all about taking care of people. And, you know, I, I believe in being real with them. I don't sugarcoat. I'm not going to lie to you to try to make you feel better. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not going to go out and actively try to hurt somebody's feelings, but you know, I believe that it's important to have hard conversations. That's how we learn and grow.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And if you're not able to have those hard conversations as a leader, then you maybe should rethink what it is that you're doing and where you're trying to go. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I try to do as much as I can to help um, mentor and develop younger soldiers in whether it's you know, have had people ask about audie Murphy, um, the legislative affairs position,
2: this mm-hmm.
1: strategic broadening seminar that I've been to, you know, uh, I I will I've talked to people, I don't even know who they are, just send me emails and ask about stuff. And so just tell them everything that I've done and what I think is you know good for their careers, you know, like I said, getting outside of their comfort zone, doing something that challenges them, um, trying to set themselves apart from their peers. So I just hope that the words and my actions um will inspire everybody on a you know a daily basis as much as I can.
0: I think there's perception among soldiers that they can talk to this sergeant major. Um even sometimes when they can't talk to their own chain of command, they see the sergeant major and they can go talk to them about things they wouldn't tell other people. Like I'm not getting even like the funny things we say, like I'm I'm not getting paid, right? But but seriously, like they feel like yeah. they go directly to Sergeant Major and that you have their back. Like, that's that's kind of an awesome responsibility.
1: It is. Um, I had one of my peers that said at one point, you know, sergeants Major are like janitors because all we do is clean up messes, uh, which <laughs> is true. Um, but it's it's what I love. I, I love taking care of soldiers and, and my civilians now. You know, I like solving problems. That's just who I am as a person. So if you bring an issue to me, I'm going to do what I can to solve that problem. Like I said, I I don't take the answer no lightly. You know, if you tell me no, um, and I'm not challenging authority, but I do understand that things can still happen. So I will do as much as, you know, exhaust every opportunity possible to try to make things happen, to help somebody out.
0: What's something about you that most people don't know, but you, you know, carry with you as a reminder of what you've overcome? So
1: uh, one of my sisters and I were adopted and we were put into foster care at a very young age. And it took almost four years for everything to get worked through the state for us to be adopted. And we were lucky to go with one family the entire time. Uh, my adopted parents got us when I was about 18 months old. My sister was two. And for the next four years, it was a lot of back and forth between my adoptive parents our foster parents at the time and my biological mom. And know at first I obviously don't remember everything but towards the end as I got older and saw how much we were going back and forth and what it was doing to my foster parents to see you know every time we left they didn't know if they were going to see us again Mm. and for them to welcome us into their home you know they already had two kids I have an oldest sister and brother um they already had two kids of their own and mom worked as a foster parent for several years and um I, I asked her, you know, what made you choose us of all the kids that you had? And she said, it, it, it just felt right. And it was scary for them to, they had, you know, were so strong, so much resilience to be able to mm. handle, you know, if you're anybody out there's a foster parent, no, you know, that's a, that's a really hard job to have because you don't yeah. know what's going to happen. It, you have to open your heart and your home to somebody with the potential that they may leave and you might not ever see them again. So thankfully we were adopted. Um, They got us out of a bad situation and into a great one. And, you know, my entire family, extended family too, has always made my sister and I feel like we were one of them from the very beginning. You know, Mm. we were not blood related, but it didn't matter. Um, So it's awesome to see that. And I've carried that with me my entire military career. You know, my parents are both very strong and a lot of my leadership skills I learned from them, not necessarily from the military Mm. Um, and on days where I might not be able to, you know, push through things on my own, um, I have an obsession for cupcakes, and <laughs> I have never had a cupcake that didn't make me smile. So,
2: um, nice.
1: That between working out and eating, you know, I I work out because I like to eat a lot, and cupcakes are one of those things that, um, yeah, lots of sprinkles, lots of frosting, and no matter what, that can always make your day turn around.
0: It's a sweet resilience.
1: <laughs> sweet resilience. I like that. That's that should be the name of a cupcake shop.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean that's that's kind of your life, right?
1: Yes. It sounds like a retirement opportunity.
0: <laughs> well, Command Star Major, it's been a pleasure to have you in the program.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me. I really appreciate this opportunity and I look forward to taking the ACFT with you all.
0: Yes, and we we look forward to having you uh beat that acft into the ground and it's been a pleasure to have you and uh, we hope to talk to you again and that's it for this edition of leaders corner if you or your unit is interested in getting more on resilience training go to usar.army.mil. happy women's history month and we look forward to seeing you again thanks for listening